Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 30th of April 2023, 9.30 service. Tim Davis speaking on the resurrection in John. We come to the resurrection in John's Gospel, the last talk in this mini-series looking at the resurrection accounts in the different Gospels. Um, it's been interesting to see the differences in the accounts, what the Gospel writers focus on and why. We see the different perspectives on the resurrection of Jesus, who he appeared to, where, when. Um, what I found really interesting, particularly when I was preparing for this talk, was uh, we're seeing what truly sets them apart from one another. Really is the style in which these different gospel, these different resurrection accounts are written. Um, Matthew's resurrection account for me is kind of like a you know, blockbuster movie with everything that's going on. Perhaps something by Michael Bay, you know, there's a earthquakes, angels in dazzling white, soldiers fainting and collapsing. And at the end of it, we get this rousing speech where Jesus tells his disciples to go. And he says, go and be my disciples in the world. You can hear the stirring music getting louder and louder. So go and do what I've been doing. You used to think we were just like one man, but now we're a whole army. Go! And the rousing action music comes and the credits come down, or something like that. Uh, Mark's gospel, on the other hand, a um, bit different. Uh, Mark's gospel itself feels more like a kind of a soap opera, TV miniseries style. It's so snappy, quick. Everything happens bit by bit by bit. Now, if you looked at the events of EastEnders in the course of a year, you think, that doesn't happen to most people in the course of an entire lifetime, let alone kind of 50 episodes or something. Um, now, despite being incredibly similar to Matthew's account of the resurrection, Jesus doesn't actually feature in the resurrection account in Mark's gospel. It's like this complete mystery left there. The women go to visit Jesus' tomb, but they find it empty. No, he died. He was buried. Why is his body not there? Where is Jesus? What happened? Now, so I did not see this plot twist coming at the end of this 30-second segment. No, the women are told that Jesus has gone on ahead of you to Galilee. Go there and you'll find him. Galilee? We have to go to Galilee. Unfortunately, uh, Mark's Gospel isn't quite like EastEnders. It's more like one of those TV miniseries which unsuccessfully doesn't get recommissioned for a second season. So you're just left with this kind of like, okay, so where is Jesus then? Um, thankfully, the writer of Luke's Gospel uh, thought it was quite important to let his readership know exactly what had happened to Jesus. In Jesus' encounters with his disciples and others after he's raised to life, Jesus' recorders is explaining in detail exactly why he had to die, why the events leading up to his death and resurrection took place, why it was necessary, how it was God's plan all along. Now, the whole kind of denouement to Luke's gospel, it's, for me, it's like reminiscent of watching episodes of Murder, She Wrote. You know, despite all the possible clues you saw throughout the whole program, it was never until Jessica Fletcher would kind of explain exactly what had happened, uh, what the killer in the series had planned, and how they almost managed to get away with murder, that you finally understood what had happened. And so you that John's Luke's gospel needs that explanation, so you know exactly, ah, I get it. But John's gospel, John's different. 
He doesn't go for sudden, exciting, explosive narrative or quick, snappy cliffhangers or detailed analysis and explanation of what happened. No, for me, when I read John's Gospel, particularly this account, it feels more like a gorgeously written novel. It's so descriptive in retelling the events of the resurrection, but above all, it seems to show this real humanity. By that, I mean the Gospel as a whole features people displaying such earthly characteristics of what it means to be human. There's emotion, stress, fear, disbelief, joy, wonder. If there was a gospel which was made for you to read and really understand what's taking place, to immerse yourself in, to identify with the different human traits you read, then John's gospel is that one. And I think it's in this rich, vivid narrative that we learn more about the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's what we're looking at today. Now, in the first section of chapter 20 that we had read to us, we have this account of Peter and another disciple hearing that Jesus' body had vanished from the tomb. And so they run to it to see for themselves. The other disciples described as outrunning Peter so desperate is he to see what's happened to his friend, his teacher, his Lord. Now, why does John feel the need to put this extra descriptive bit in about the other disciple outrunning his friend in this race to get to the tomb? But he wants the reader to understand just how crazy everything was for the disciples. They had lost Jesus. They were scared. They felt threatened. They didn't know that the events of the past few days had happened for reasons that they just didn't understand. And now they're left with this mixture of confusion and shock that Jesus' body has disappeared. Hope that maybe something has happened, but most of all worry, I think. But also the other disciple is described as the one Jesus loved. And this is commonly believed to be John the author of John's Gospel. And so John really needs to emphasize, he wants the reader um, to understand that everything he's written comes from his own first-hand experience as a witness or from pe talking to people as first-hand witnesses. So there could be no doubt or dispute over the events that he's recorded. He even says that you know, he and Peter didn't realize what had happened to Jesus because they just never understood from all the Old Testament prophecies that would have known, that it was all about Jesus, that he would die but be raised to life again. Now, quite um, a few people, many years later, would put about that Jesus never rose from the dead. His disciples actually stole the body and put the story about. But John, what he's doing here, he's saying, well, no, he couldn't have done that. Jesus' body had vanished without us even knowing that he um, would have risen from the dead that this was the plan all along. That they just assumed he was still dead. And at that time, they had no idea that what in fact was happening was that John was testifying that Jesus, much to their bewilderment, had gone from the tomb. And then we come to this deeply moving encounter between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Mary is described as being outside the empty tomb that she's discovered. She's crying, weeping. 
She's mourning the loss of her beloved Lord. And now it seems in a final humiliating indignity, Jesus' body has been taken, perhaps maybe by grave robbers or somebody. John shares with us her sense of despair, of hopelessness, of utter sorrow and pain. And in doing so, we're able to sympathize, to empathize with her, and therefore set ourselves up to share in the transformation of her sorrow into joy. Through her tears, and perhaps because it's still early morning and the light wasn't there, she just doesn't realize that it's Jesus who's standing next to her. And again, she too doesn't understand these Old Testament prophecies and how they were all about Jesus. She's not expecting Jesus to have come back to life. She just knows that he's dead and now his body is gone. But in this deeply moving moment, which I think John describes so powerfully, she suddenly realizes who this person with her really is. They just say one word each. Mary. Teacher. You can imagine her throwing herself at Jesus' feet, grabbing hold of him, touching him to know he's really there, he's really alive. Don't hold on to me, Jesus has to say. And here again, we find this compelling evidence for the validity of events in John's Gospel. Mary Magdalene is recorded as the first person to see, to hear, to touch Jesus. And yet as a woman... She was unlikely to have been believed. If they suddenly had a case like, in court, like what happened to Jesus' body, her testimony, despite being the first person to have seen Jesus, would not have been accepted or believed. But here, John is making her the first witness to the resurrection. Now, he could have changed the narrative. He could have tried to make it sound more believable, saying, I was the first person to see Jesus. But that's not the purpose of John's Gospel. He wants everything to be recorded as accurately as possible. Details matter to John. It's why this behavior and emotion to the people he's writing about are so important. Because he wants the reader, you and I, to be able to visualize these situations for themselves. To identify with the range of emotions that the people they're reading about were going through. And so be left with no doubt that what we're reading about did actually take place. After the meeting between Mary and Jesus, he follows these two accounts of Jesus appearing to his disciples. In the first one, we get the kind of the level of details that we come to expect from John. The disciples are described as living in fear. And yet then they were overjoyed to see their saviour alive again. In the space of a few short words, Jesus conveys his instructions to them. But not just to the disciples, but all of us. Disciples are to go out into the world and spread the good news. We are to go out into the world and spread the good news. The disciples were not going to be alone, but equipped with the Holy Spirit. We are not our to do this on our own. We have God's Holy Spirit. And they, we, crucially, must also remember to forgive people their sins. Wonderful, great stuff. 
Slight problem, not everyone's there. Thomas was missing, wasn't he? Um, and John's description of Thomas's disbelief, I think, challenges us to consider well, how might we react when someone tells us that the seemingly impossible has actually taken place. Thomas is a wonderfully, um, I think, analytical, pragmatic disciple of Jesus. He's witnessed some of these incredible events in his time with Jesus. And yet the raising to life of Jesus, whom he saw crucified, still seems impossible. Look, I'm sure you guys believe that Jesus, who we saw nailed to a cross, killed, and then buried in a tomb with a big stone in front of it, I'm sure you believe he's alive. But unless I see it for myself, unless I touch him, touch his wounds, to know it's really him, and hear him talking to me, hear his breath on me so I know he's really alive, then I'm sorry, but I just can't believe what seems impossible. How many of us would identify with that thought process of John? But then all of a sudden, Jesus is there, inviting John to test whether it really is him or not. And I have to say, it's at this stage where, for once, I don't think John is at his most effective in trying to get the reader to feel you know, a part of the drama unfolding. Call me picky, squeamish, but if someone says to me, hey Tim, put your hands in my wound and you know that it's really me, I'm going to say, nah, I'm good, it's fine, I totally believe what you're saying. And yet, it is this very incident that is so directly addressed to you and I. Because you have seen me, Jesus says, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, this is not the rebuke to Thomas that you might think it is. Instead, it feels more like John, Jesus, addressing everyone, asking us to affirm whether we believe what we're reading, what we're hearing. We don't have the benefit of first-hand witness to the resurrected Jesus that Thomas had. We only have what we're reading or hearing to enable us to believe that Jesus Christ really did die and rise to new life again. But if we do believe, we are blessed for doing so. And that is the entire purpose, not just of the resurrection accounts, but of the whole of John's gospel, that we might believe. John's gospel is rich and vivid in its literary style and content. It's the sort of book that really requires, at the very least, a second reading, as new <coughs> insights come to life with subsequent reading. That is far greater depth and perspective to the picture of Jesus and also all the other persons who feature in it than you might get from Matthew or Mark or Luke, more commonly known as the Synoptic Gospels. And fundamental to that is the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived on earth as a man, that he was crucified and died, and yet it was through his sacrificial death that we all can receive salvation and then share in his triumph of resurrection to new life. 
with the promise of God's Holy Spirit to remain with us. That's John's gospel and message to us. Now, despite the fact that the end of chapter 20 feels like a nice logical conclusion to John's gospel, um, John's literary masterpiece finishes with an epilogue. He treats us to chapter 21. Now, an epilogue is usually something that is put into films and books to show future events, something after the main events of the um, uh, of the story have taken place, almost like a kind of this is what happens in the future. For example, I have a you know, particular fondness for the epilogue in the final Harry Potter film. Um, it takes place several years in the future, after the main events of the final film and book. And it brings a, a nice closure to everything. You can see that despite all the troubles our main protagonists had encountered, all is well in the end. And it also shows that the ginger hair gene really is quite dominant. Um, (laughs) The epilogue in John's Gospel continues his account of post-resurrection appearances. But I think it also serves as a key example of, of God's relationship with us as individuals and our mission as God's people. Now, in the interest of time, we didn't have the whole of chapter 21 read as well. But two key things happen in it. Firstly... There's this miraculous catch of fish that Jesus aids his disciples in. And secondly, Peter, who had denied Jesus three times the night Jesus was arrested, is reinstated to this position of influence and authority. Now, Peter's reinstatement is important because it affirms that God still loves us and values us even when we mess up. He forgives us and wants us still to serve him in our daily lives. So never feel like you are not worthy of God's love or not good enough for his service. But in the other event, this miraculous catch of fish, at first it could just feel like another of Jesus' miracles. But I think it serves as a key indicator of the task ahead of the disciples and how they will accomplish it. And it's one that we too must pay heed to. The disciples are not having much success trying to catch fish, but Jesus' intervention, shouting from the shore, saying, put your nets on the other side of the boat, results in an incredible haul of fish. The disciples weren't able to accomplish this on their own. They needed Jesus' power to achieve this. But soon they would be going out to be fishers of men, trying to bring others to faith in God. And this role would also have Jesus' strength and authority behind it, as it still does today, when Jesus calls us not just to follow him, but to bring others to him also. Why must we do this? Well, because we know the resurrection of Jesus to be true. And if we know it to be true, then we must also know that the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that has defeated the burden and punishment of sin and is the same power that he has given to us by his Holy Spirit to enable us to live our lives for him. So let's get busy doing that.